the Americhicks with Molly Vokes and Kim Monson. The most important stories. They are like this newfound, off-hinged part of the left. Even Chuck Schumer's pushing back on. The latest in politics and world affairs. The buck is stopping with Trump. The different administrations prior to him have been kicking the can down the road on a number of issues. And opinions and ideas that prepare you to tackle the day ahead. The heart of this is, is the U.S. Constitution a progressive document, or is it something that should be looked at as an original document? It's the Americhicks, Molly and Kim. Because face it, ideas matter. Because ideas matter. Welcome to the Americhicks World War II Project. We are excited to share a really amazing story with you today about a fighter pilot legendary ace robin olds uh this story is going to be told by his daughter christina olds and she has just written his his memoirs actually came out in 2010 she's working on another one that you can get soon about her dad or her grandfather but let's don't get too far ahead of ourselves so at first check out the fighter pilot the memoirs of legendary ace robin olds so christina olds welcome to the americhick show thank you uh, it's great to join you guys Thanks so much for being here. We're really excited to hear about your dad. And a quick thank you to Tom Tarver, who introduced us to you, because we would want to get as many of these World War II stories as possible. Now, in researching your dad, it looks like he has a, an amazing story that spans 30 years, and he's got some time in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. And, and we're going to let you share those with us. But at first, I just wanted to go back and, and kind of start with how you got started telling your dad's story. Where did you hear um, about your dad's story? Did he tell you growing up or was it something later on? Well, yes, I heard a lot of his stories growing up. Uh, you know, wherever we were stationed, he would take the time to tell me about what he had done there previously. Uh, so we were stationed in England three times, so he had a huge love for England. And I got a lot of uh, World War II stories. But of course, when you're a, a child and a teenager, you never really pay much attention, truthfully, to what your parents are doing. And um, I certainly knew that he was important, especially, you know, during that, after that battle in Vietnam, where he became really famous. Um, but I didn't uh, really spend time with him traveling or talking about his memoirs until about oh, 1995, when he himself started writing his notes. And I started traveling around with him to bases and uh, air shows around the world and spent a lot of time with him. And then, of course, lived in Colorado and took care of him. And so I really got a great sense of what had happened then. And he, he did write a beautiful World War II diary. It's all handwritten. And I had that, and I had lots of his notes. But 50% of the book is my pure research, um, tying everything together. So it certainly was a labor of love. Well, and uh, um, Christina, at what point in time did you realize that, that your dad really was a big deal? I mean, I think lots of times, you know, daughters, uh, you know, they, they're, they're pretty excited about their dads. But at, at one point in time, there had to be the realization that it wasn't just you, that he'd done something really, really special. Uh, yes, it was when I woke up uh, January 3rd, 1967, and get, got out of my front door to go to school in Washington, D.C., and our lawn was covered with reporters because he had just pulled off Operation Bolo, uh, the big fight against the North Vietnamese Air Force. And that's when he that's when I really knew that he, he was a really big deal. So I was uh, just about to turn 15 uh, in two days. So, yeah, 14. I knew then. And uh, why don't you explain exactly what that uh, operation was, Operation Bolo in uh, well, Vietnam? 
Yeah, he was the wing commander of the 8th Tactical Fighter Wing that was in Thailand and flying the F-4s up over North Vietnam. And when he got there in September of 66, the, um, the MiGs had been, the North Vietnamese MiGs had been shooting down the 105s and the F-4s and a bunch of other uh, Air Force planes and Navy planes consistently. And he just decided he had to change the tactics and figure out how to trick the, the MiGs into coming up when the F-4s were up because the, the MiGs didn't want to battle against the F-4, which was a you know, much more powerful uh, airplane as far as dogfighting. And so they would disappear. And so my dad decided, along with his wingman, uh, J.B. Stone at the time, that they, they were going to construct something called Operation Bolo, which really was sort of like a, a Trojan horse operation. To, and they disguised the F-4s as if they were 105s. They, they changed the armament. They changed the call signs. They changed how they flew together so they would mimic uh, squadrons of, of or flights of F-105s going up into North Vietnam. And the MiGs would think, oh, here's our easy target again. And uh, so they went up after them. And within 10 minutes, they, my dad's group shot down seven of those MiGs, which was, at the time was about a third of the effective North Vietnamese Air Force. So it became really well known as Operation Bolo. Boy, that is just astounding. Um, very creative. So um, <laughs> most interesting. So let's uh, this is Kim here. Uh, we are the Americhicks, Molly Vote, and Kim Munson. And we are talking with Christina Oles about her father, Robin Oles, who was uh, a World War, World War II fighter pilot. Uh, he took time out during Korea. Uh, as far as a fighter pilot and then again in Vietnam. So let's go to World War II. Uh, you have this wonderful book. It is Fighter Pilot, The Memoirs of uh, Legendary Ace Robin Oles. So why don't you uh, start at the beginning of the book? <laughs> Way back in the dino- the dinosaurs came to Virginia. <laughs> those, those crazy, was it James Michener's book? I'll always start with the Pleistocene age. Um, <laughs> Maybe go a little further into the future. How's that? <laughs> uh, okay, well, he went to, uh, I'll cut it a little bit short. He went to West Point in the class of 1944, and they actually shortened it to three years uh, because they wanted to get all the youngsters off to the different uh, war theaters. And um, they, so he made it over to World War II in May of 1944 with a squadron, with the, the 434th Fighter Squadron, which was part of the 479th Fighter Group. They had all trained together in P-38s in California. And so they all went together over to England and to a place uh, called Wadisham, where they were all stationed. And they arrived, of course, two weeks before D-Day. Now, I mean, can you imagine that coming over as a brand new young pilot? Um, and so my dad flew three separate missions on D-Day, and their job was to take off and uh, patrol the beaches of Normandy and protect the ships and the boys landing on the beaches from the Luftwaffe, the Air Force, the German Air Force that was expected to come up and attack. But, you know, the problem was that day the Luftwaffe never came up. And my dad just really regretted all his life that they didn't disobey orders and start firing on the Germans because they could see them, you know, shooting at the kids landing on the beaches. But um, his job, he he stuck to his job, which was to patrol the beaches and then go home and refuel, change airplanes and come back. So he has brilliant descriptions about that uh, in his diary, which I included in the book. They're very quite emotional to read. 
You know, um, Christina, I think that Normandy brings that out in, in everyone. It is a very an emotional uh, thing to have uh, been part of and to watch. And uh, that is interesting about disobeying orders, cer- certainly in the military. Uh, seldom does that happen. And so, uh, you know, I can understand why he did not do that. But I'm sure what he saw patrolling those beaches was pretty difficult. Very difficult. Very difficult. And in fact, uh, his roommate from West Point was among the young army uh, lieutenants that was down there. So it was very personal, very personal for my dad. And it was also the first time where he thought, you know, tactically, should I really disobey orders? And I think that's what really put it in his mind that he should always really carefully take a look at, at the orders that he was following. Were they really the smartest thing? And I think that influenced him later on, certainly, to uh, become known as a renegade who was going to buck orders uh, quite often mm. to make things happen the way he wanted to make them happen. Unfortunately, he had such a great tactical mind that uh, his decisions were, for the most part, very right. And, you know, the guys who served with him in Vietnam said all the tactics changed because of his good decisions. Wow. Well, that sure does make a leader, being able to think uh, under such pressure like that. Christina, let's talk about um, the next few missions, if you will. You said he threw, he flew three missions on D-Day, and I see that in all, just in World War II alone, he was credited with 107 combat missions, so and a lot right. of victory. So, so tell us a little bit further past D-Day. Oh well, my goodness, you know, he flew missions all over Germany and France and Belgium. Um, constantly, uh, their job mostly was to accompany the, the big bombers and to protect them. Um, halfway through his time over there, their squadron commander got shot down, and my dad became the squadron commander. He was 22 and a major. Can you imagine wow. that? And then he became the first ace of the group in uh, shooting down the Germans. And they switched over to the Mustangs, the P-51 Mustang, which, of course, there are over 100 of them still flying today, and those Mustangs are always the stars of all the air shows. They're so wonderful. He loved that plane so much. And then he flew um, you know, he flew the Mustang for the remainder of, of the war and had many, many, many. I mean, there are so many examples of, of his missions in the book. I don't even know what, which one to pick out and tell you about, but there, some of them are pretty hair-raising. Yeah. You know, he would, his engines quit. Uh, he nearly crashed. Uh, his, uh, you know, the the cockpit windows blew out at one point, and he didn't know if he was going to make it back across the channel. And so, you know, just lots of lots of adventures like that. Yeah. You know, Christina, as Molly and I have um, started this project, we went to Normandy in 2016 with a team that took four D-Day vets. And when you're at Omaha Beach, you realize that it is sacred ground. Uh, and um, one of the things that I, I, I did not realize until we started this project, that the losses of American airmen was significant. In World War II, we lost 88,000 young airmen. And so this uh, this this situation with your dad that he did 107 combat missions and lived to tell about it was really was really in a, a feat in itself yes it was and you know but it's also no he yes he was a brilliant pilot that's for sure his skills got him through some really hairy scrapes he almost didn't make it back but you know sometimes it really was the luck of the draw and and unfortunately those numbers those vast numbers were very much due to the the B-17s and the B-24s that were going down because those held 10 men 
you know, and there was one day my dad was in tears when he told me about this one day that 40 bombers went down, 40 bombers. And they were, you know, they were so attacked by the Germans that my dad in his Mustang and all of his, his um, you know, uh, friends that were flying all around him could, could barely protect themselves and get out of the way of the bombers that were breaking apart above them and falling down on them um, as they were, you know, as, as my dad and his squadron mates were trying to shoot down the Germans and protect the bombers. They were really, really, it was an awful day. I think that was the Battle of Arnhem. If I remember, okay. I can't remember the date, but it was 40 bombers went down in one day. Wow. It's a lot. Um, Christina, this is the marriage chicks, Molly and Kim, and we're talking with Christina Olds about her father, World War II triple ace Robin Olds. I'm looking at one of the reviews on the book that you wrote, Fighter Pilot, The Memoirs of Legendary Ace Robin Olds. And, and, and this person is talking about in combat in World War II, he's in a P-38. He dropped his external fuel tank to jump about 50 ME-109s, and he forgot to select his internal fuel. Uh, can, can you give us a little bit of it, like continue that for us real quick? What? It sounds like he's got to be frightened. <laughs> well, no, frightened. No, frightened. No, that frightened wasn't a word really that would have entered my dad's head. Um, he he was he was frustrated and furious at himself because he forgot to switch the tanks over before he dropped the tanks. And so and so, what happened is he was um, he had a German behind him and he had a German in front of him. He had him in his sight, and all of a sudden his engines quit, both of them. And he went screaming down toward the ground, but of course, you know, fired. He had this one guy in his sights, and he fired at him. He knocked down the German in front of him. And so my dad loved to joke later on that he's the only pilot who's ever shot down an enemy aircraft while in glide mode. <laughs> uh, but he, you know, he switched as the plane's going down. He very calmly uh, struggled to switch over the tanks and get his engine started again. And I guess uh, I heard he got restarted about a hundred feet above the ground, and he pulled out. Oh my Pulled gosh! Out and came back up. Yeah, it was just—it was crazy. <laughs> Christina, how would you describe your father? I mean, he sounds like—is it courage or um, really smart? I mean, what what would be the words that you would describe him with? Well, well, you know, the people who were lucky enough to know him all will understand when I say that that he was the real deal. He he was the whole package. Everything you read about him was true. He was just one of those individuals who was very self-confident, very brave, at the same time very humble, uh, very, very in tune with other people, very, very smart. Uh, He was a, you know, history fanatic and just had learned a lot about how to how to be uh, an officer and a leader, and also from his father he learned that. But he was he was also an incredibly gentle man and hysterically funny. He was an, an incredible prankster, and so I grew up around him with a lot of laughter, and of course you know singing fighter pilot songs. But <laughs> he was just the best father a girl could have, and I was quite a tomboy. I loved riding horses and climbing trees, and you know pounding nails in his workshop and. He always, I was like a puppy following him around. He taught me how to swim. He taught me how to fly fish. He taught me how to build a campfire. And, and we just laughed. And especially later on in life, when I got to drinking age, we'd go off camping with a bottle of scotch way up in the mountains of, of Colorado and start a campfire and, you know, cook our fish that we caught and drink scotch and tell body stories. It was just so much fun. So he was also 
a very emotional man. Um, you know, a lot of people don't understand that that the, the the way to be really strong is to also be in touch with your vulnerability. And he was that. I saw him cry so many times. He would be so moved if the moon was beautiful, if there was a rainbow, when a litter of kittens was born, uh, beautiful music. He was very moved emotionally by you know, the beauty of life. And and so he took that all into his soul. And, and he just loved being around people, too. So he was a real people person, always made deep connections. And, you know, it's, it's kind of remarkable to, to find somebody like that these days who also can be a leader. I wish, I wish we had more of them, to tell you the truth. Yeah, we do, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, hang on. Let, let's go to break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk more about World War II triple ace Robin Olds. And we're on the phone with Christina Olds talking about her dad. World War II is only one of, of the three wars that he was involved in. So stick with us, and we'll be right back to talk more about this great man. Welcome back. We are the Americhicks, Molly Vote and Kim Munson. We have on the line with us Chris, Christina Oles. She is the daughter of Robin Oles, who was a, a fighter pilot in World War II, served in Korea, uh, the Korean War, and then also fighter pilot in the Vietnam War. The book is Fighter Pilot, the memoirs of legendary ace Robin Oles. And just love hearing these stories. Uh, your father was a triple ace. And in order to be an ace, my understanding is, is to shoot down five planes. Isn't that correct? That's correct. Okay. So Triple Ace is a really big deal. He served 100 or he was on 107 combat missions in World War II. He flew the P30 uh, yeah, the P38s and the P51s. So Christina, this fabulous book, I cannot wait to get it. Uh, but there's got to be so many stories. What is the story about your dad, Robin Oles, that uh, you'd like to share with our listeners uh, from World War II? Well, there's one story he told me uh, the most when I was a kid uh, and all through his life. Uh, rather than the combat stories when I was little, I heard this story. And he loved England. He was madly in love with England. As a little boy, he, he read um, King Arthur and the you know, Knights of the Round Table and was completely mesmerized by the romance of, of the knights. And, and he took a love for the English people and learning the poetry and reading lots of Dickens and and um, just learning the history of England. He developed a love for the people that really, you know, went with him when he went over to England during World War II. And as he was over there, he fell more in love with, with the people in the countryside. And he used to wander off the base whenever he had uh, could get away for leave and go to London or go out into the countryside and meet people. And one of his times in London... He was uh, wandering around the streets, and it's just such a great city to wander in. And the best way, of course, to be in any city is to get lost and go down uh, little streets and little alleys. And he found um, a little antique shop, and in the window of this antique shop was a full suit of armor. And you can imagine, after my dad's love for King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, that he, he absolutely got drawn into the front of this little shop, this little dusty full of antiques, and found this very little old man in there who was delighted to see this tall, young yank, as they called them, the American soldiers. And the the proprietor of the shop um, immediately put on a kettle of uh, tea and, and made my dad sit down and have tea with him and started telling him stories of his life and 
asked young Robin to tell him his stories of his life, and they became they became friends. It was a very a moving experience for my dad to connect at that level with an old gentleman who knew so much about the history and had so much of England's history right there in his shop. And my my father told him, he said, I want to buy that suit of armor uh, up front. I can't take it now because I have a friend picking me up in his car, but I'm going to come back with a truck next week and pick it up from you. And, may, you know, I'd like to pay for it. And And the gentleman said, oh, no, 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 don't pay for it now. And that thing's been up there for so long. I'll sell it to you for half price. And don't worry about it. Just come back next week. And so I think they spent two or three hours together, and my father just adoring every second of it. And so he went back to his base and um, actually wrote a letter home to his, his grandmother and told, told her he was going to bring home this suit of armor and how much she would love to, to see it. And um, then he went back, I think it was 10 days later, was wandering down the street when they heard the sound of the V-1 bombs coming in over London and the sirens going off. And the bombs started hitting the ground, and my father ducked into a, a bomb shelter or a, a shelter by the side of the road in, the, in a building, and he came back out and went running down the street to where the shop had been, and it was just a big hole in the ground. And with just, you know, the dust rising and the smoke rising, and the entire block had been leveled by this view on bomb that had dropped in. And my father said he cried his eyes out, and he realized that his friend was gone, and the suit of armor was gone. But most of all, it just let him know. It sort of cemented in his head how brave the English people were, what they were going through to survive this onslaught from Germany, and how much his admiration and love for them just skyrocketed even more after this. And so, I mean, he told me that story so many times with tears in his eyes and said, you know, I, I should have bought that armor that day, but more than anything, I wanted that old man to still be alive. Mm. So that really, you know, was kind of a, a, a very melancholy story from that time, but it also underscored what my dad came to understand about the importance of the people you connect with and the history that, you know, we all need to learn and, and appreciate rather than just being focused on uh, material gratification. So... You know, that story stayed with me from childhood. I think it's in the book. I think that's going to stay with me as well. Um, I think something that people don't realize, we had uh, interviewed another P-38 pilot, Major Frederick Arnold. And um, I hadn't really thought about what it meant to go out on a mission in the morning and to come back and the bunk next to you might have might not have your colleague coming back and getting in that bunk and what that would mean exactly and the courage and the fortitude and the perseverance of these guys that the next day you know they got up and they went on that mission did your father talk at all about anything like that yes he did he did and he had a very interesting take on it because he himself was not a fearful person but and and as a youngster, uh, as many men, they tended to look down on the guys that were afraid, uh, because it was you know you're supposed to just be brave and be manly all the time. But he was always very impressed by you know the few people in the squadron that were afraid and would still go out and fly. 
and he said there was one one of his bunk mates in the squadron was uh, a young man who would literally cry himself to sleep every night. He was so afraid. And but he would get up in the morning and and he would go fly and he'd accomplish his missions and then he'd come home and he'd drink beer with all of them and you know eat his food and he'd go you know crawl into his bunk at night and and cry because he was afraid to that he was going to die and sure enough he went out one morning and never came back and my father decided that bravery is not about the guy who's full of uh, bravado and bragging and, you know, throwing his weight around and blustery and saying he's courageous all the time. True bravery is from people who are afraid and still do it anyway. And they, they take that fear and they work with it like an like energy. And, and they go out and they do what they need to do. That's real courage. And that certainly stuck with me um, as a lesson in my life. Wow. I didn't even realize that's where that sticker came from. <laughs> but I've seen that a lot. I love it. Uh, we're, this is the Americhicks, Molly and Kim, and this is our World War II project. We're talking on the phone with Christina Olds about her father. Check out the book, Fighter Pilot, the Memoirs of Legendary Ace Robin Olds. Um, Christina, did your dad talk about where he was when he heard about the end of the war? Um, he was right. Oh, yes, he was right there on the base. And he said he was pretty funny about that. There's actually we've just finished a documentary and one of his last interviews, he talks about, you know, they hear that the end of the war in Europe had happened and uh, they were on base. And then they were all mad because they could hear on the radio that everyone around the world was celebrating. They were seeing these newspaper clippings of, you know, uh, sailors kissing women in Times Square in New York, and they were all confined to base. <laughs> <laughs> they, they weren't allowed to leave. You know, it was just wrapping up the end. Of course, everyone was elated, but, um, you know, their last, he knew in the last few weeks that they were going to win because the Germans were so beaten down, fewer and fewer of their planes were coming up. Of course, on the ground, their, line, their lines were retreating. And they knew the war was, it was not really a sudden end, at, you know, at that point. In the Pacific, it was a sudden end with the atomic bomb. But in Europe, it, it, was, it really was a winding down kind of thing. And uh, so VE Day was, yes, a celebration, but was something they were expecting by then, by that point. So it was sort of a business as usual that morning when they woke up, and then they all wanted to go into town to the local pubs and celebrate, and they weren't allowed off base. That is is funny. We actually, Molly and I did a World War II project the other day, and Jim Blaine uh, was in the Pacific Theater, and he said that when the war ended, he happened to be in Denver. He was being transported from one place to another. He said, I kissed every girl that I ran into. So if you have a great aunt or grandmother and I didn't kiss them, let me know. (laughs) My dad dad was so funny. He said, but once we were let off base, we made up for lost time. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Speaking of girls, uh, your dad your, uh, married a movie star. He, so your mom was a movie star. And yes, um, Ella Rains. So I want to hear that story. Okay. So <laughs> as you know, um, the, all of the Hollywood movies were shipped overseas so the, the kids could watch them in their blacked out Quonset huts. 
and uh, you know gather on their steel chairs and watch these movies projected and the and the you know the Pantone newsreels and everything. And he became enamored of this particular uh, one young actress with black hair and green eyes. And when he came back over to the states, his first assignment, his first real assignment was uh, out in California flying the P-80s, our first jets, the shooting stars, in March Air Force Base down in Riverside. And um, when he was there, he found out that, uh, and of course, in those days, fighter pilots were the cream of the crop. I mean, you just couldn't find finer young men. I happen to think that's still true today. Um, but they, you know, they were just handsome and brave and come back from war and decorated, and the women just loved them. And... And so uh, there was a lot of mixing between Hollywood movie stars and uh, American servicemen at the time. And my father managed to finagle a, a, a date with, with Ella's um, secretary, her stand-in named Valerie. And because my dad, I think a colonel that he knew, had a date with Ella. And so they went out, the four of them went out to dinner. Um, but my mother also at the time was dating Clark Gable. There are a couple <laughs> of pictures of them together. But my father became so enamored with her over dinner that the next day, he I think he literally stole someone's car on base and gathered some flowers and some champagne and figured out where she lived. Uh, I don't know. He, he got the address from somebody and showed up at her door. And uh, the long story short is that she broke up with Clark Gable within a week and married my dad nine months later. Oh, my so. gosh. <laughs> wow. And, and uh, when was the story. first child born? <laughs> that was me. Oh, um, that is so, well, that's something. So they were quite the beautiful couple. There are a couple of photos in the book, but, of course, I have tons of those photos. And, you know, she had done 25 movies with John Wayne and all these other, you know, great actors, and she had quite a career. But my dad told her before they married, he said, look, Ella, I'm a fighter pilot, and that's all I'm ever going to be. It's all I want to be, and you just need to understand that and accept it. And you're a movie star. You can keep on acting, do your movies, whatever you want to do. I would love for you to move with me at my assignments around the world, but just know that I'm not going to stop and hold still and refuse an assignment if you're working on a movie somewhere. And so they started, and she said, oh, that's fine. Um, so they started off on this grand adventure, and his first assignment back after they got married in February of 47, his first assignment was back to England, and he was the guest commander of RAF Squadron 1, the big Tangmir, wonderful, you know, legendary squadron, the RAF Squadron 1. And my dad, for a year, was the commander of Squadron 1. Um, the photos are phenomenal at that time. And, of course, he was back in his beloved England. And he, they loved him. He loved them. Well, I'll tell you what, RAF loves my dad so much to this day that RAF Squadron 1 has opened the Robin Olds Bar at their base in Scotland. <laughs> uh -huh. and there is a tankard with my name on it waiting for me to go visit, and I'm hoping to get over there uh, this winter. So um, apparently all of our officers in Europe, all of our Air Force officers, make sure they go to that base and go to that bar. People send me photos all the time. Uh -huh. Our chief of staff always goes over there. So... You know, that's legendary, really. I mean, who would name a bar, you know, so many years later after an American airman? Oh, that really says it all. 
Well, did, so, did, did your mom, or I guess, you, did your mom go with him or what Oh, happened? yes. Yeah, she went with him. And during that time, she filmed, I think, two movies in England and was in a couple of stage plays in London at the time. And uh, then they came back to the States in early 49. And my dad was stationed at Pittsburgh Air Base when my mother was filming the first television show in New York City. It was called Janet Dean RN or something. And that's the time, of course, the Korean War was going on. And my dad wanted to get back to combat flying. He wanted to go to Korea. But his squadron commander wouldn't let him go. He said, I'm not going. You're not going to get to go. So my, my poor dad, all his life, blamed his squadron commander for not letting him get back over to combat flying. And he didn't find out until about 10 years before he passed away. And somebody told him, Robin, don't you understand why you never got over to Korea? He says, because your your wife was filming this TV show in New York, and the sponsor of the show was Lawrence Rockefeller, who I grew up knowing as Uncle Larry. And <laughs> Ella went Ella went to Lawrence and said, "If you send my if my husband goes to war, I will not be in your television show." Aww. So Lawrence went to the Pentagon, and you know as people of influence could and said no you got to keep robin olds out of the korean conflict (laughs) and you know he didn't find this out until 10 years before he died he was so upset with himself for blaming his squadron commander all his life Uh, but you know the reality is if he'd gone to korea he probably never would have made it to vietnam yeah, it's amazing how uh, how things work out. You just have to continue to to move forward and with all all those things that happen. And because what then happened in Vietnam was amazing, and I'm sure it's because your mother loved your father. I get it. Well, well, yeah, she loved him. She she loved him and was worried about him. And she just you know the more she was with him, and then I was born in '52, uh, January '52, right there in, when they were in New York City. And my sister was born uh, 14 months later. And, of course, at that time, you just you don't want your husband to go off to war. So he went through then a, a series of, of assignments that were mostly on the ground, but back in England and in Europe and in North Africa. And she went with him. But she would also go back and forth to to California, to Hollywood, and up to London to film. And I, you know, I don't have many memories of this time, but I know they. Uh, she had an apartment here and an apartment there and a house here, where my dad, you know, was just living on his pilot salary, which was nothing. And um, my mother was going back and forth across the ocean uh, in the Queen, you know, SS Queen Elizabeth, and and uh, us little girls were back and forth across the ocean all the time. So. Um, you know, she was with him the whole time. And uh, then when he went to Vietnam, we were in Washington, D.C. She wanted to hold still. And my sister and I went to school in Washington, D.C., back to a school where we had gone when he was at the Pentagon for five years, between 58 and 63, before we went back to England. So it's, it's, quite, a, it's quite a story of a, a family doing what they can to hang together. That is as long as they can. That is amazing. We are talking with Christina Olds. This is the Americhicks, Molly Vote, and Kim Munson. We're going to go to break. When we come back, we'll talk about moving on into uh, Vietnam. Uh, so we'll be right back. 
Hey, welcome back. We are the AmeriChicks, Molly Vote and Kim Munson, and this is our World War II project. On the line with us is Christina Oles. Uh, we're talking about her father, Robin Oles, who is a fighter pilot in World War II and in Vietnam. She has written an amazing book. It's Fighter Pilot, The Memoirs of Legendary Ace Robin Oles. It's uh, by Christina Oles and Ed Rasimus. And uh, fascinating, the conversation about the 107 combat missions in World War II. He's a triple ace, which means over uh, 15 uh, enemy aircraft shot down. Uh, he was in the Korean War, but was on the ground. You just shared that story in the last segment. Uh, let's move to... Vietnam and the book. I have the the book in front of me, and your father is a wonderful picture. He is on the shoulders of uh, some of his uh, fellow airmen, and he's got this handlebar mustache. So tell us about that. Well, what happened with that is when he was with the RAF in England between um, 1947 and 1949, part of uh, one of the the British gentlemen, uh, part of the squadron was named Tommy Burns. And Tommy Burns had a handlebar mustache, which was beautifully waxed at each end, and my dad greatly admired it. And so, but he wasn't allowed to grow one, of course, uh, you know, as a as an Air Force officer. But once he got to Vietnam, and once Operation Bolo was over, one a young gentleman who wasn't an American officer uh, was at the bar one night. I think it was from Australia, and they could still they could grow mustaches. And my dad started admiring his mustache <laughs> and said, "You know, I remember Tommy Burns, and I think I'd like I'd look good in a mustache." <laughs> and so he started growing this mustache. And, of course, you're not allowed to have it go out of limits. Out of limits means past the end of your mouth or over the top of the vermilion of your lips. And so, you know, it was under strict orders to not do that. Well, my father kept growing it and growing it and growing it. Pretty soon, the people in Washington started noticing. He started getting telexes and visits from officers telling him to shave it off, shave it off. You're a bad example. You're a bad influence on these young airmen. You have to shave it off, which, of course, my dad at that time, being so mad at Washington, D.C. and McNamara planning all the the flights from a desk in Washington, that my dad decided, no, I'm going to keep growing this mustache. And it became known as Robin Old's single-digit salute to Washington, (laughs) D.C. And that mustache is now no it's a mustache march it has its own wikipedia page and young airmen around the world every march starting march 1st will grow their mustaches all the way to the end of march and then they have a competition to see who has the best one and i get to go around to these different bases and judge the contest (laughs) it's hysterical so he kept that mustache and it it became known as the robin old's iconic look now, he only had it for about a year, and when he got back um, after Vietnam, his first assignment was as commandant of cadets at the Air Force Academy. He had to, of course, shave it off. But then the, the cadets started wearing false mustaches. <laughs> Every time they greeted him, they had fake mustaches on. And he didn't um, grow it back again until after he retired in 1973. And then he grew it back for about two years. But we were living in Steamboat Springs at the time, and he was quite a skier. But he would have he would have icicles forming on that damn mustache. Excuse my language. And he finally shaved it off. So, but it is it is the iconic Robin Olds look, and that's how people know him. 
I think I saw a picture as we were doing the research on this of I think maybe you and your sister that had fake mustaches on. Right. Yeah, that was pretty funny. So, well, every time every time I go back to the Air Force Academy, all the cadets now have fake mustaches that they have ready and waiting. <laughs> so it's quite a, it's quite an honor. It's oh, great fun. Oh, that's amazing. Well, we talked a little bit about Vietnam uh, and what you mentioned about McNamara, uh, you know, fighting this war from a desk. That was a tough time in America. Tell us a little bit more about that. Oh, man. That was such a tough time. Such a tough time. And, you know, the problem was our media whipped our American public into such a frenzy over this. The anti-war sentiment was so huge that people almost had no choice but to believe it was the fault of the military. Whereas the military were just doing what they were told. They had very clear jobs coming from a very clear chain of command. And um, so when my, when my dad got back from Vietnam so frustrated that, that uh, with everything that was happening as directed by Washington, uh, President Johnson hauled him into the Oval Office the day he got back. And there are wonderful photographs of them sitting together talking and Johnson said, so tell me, Colonel, how do you think it's going over there? And my dad said, sir, with all due respect to you as my commander in chief, get us the hell out of this goddamn war. And, you know, Johnson was just stunned that this officer would say that to him. And, and Johnson said, well, son, how do you expect me to do that? And my dad said, it's simple. Just win it. We can win it right now, but you won't let us mine the harbors. You won't let us attack the supply chain. You won't let us attack the, the bases. We're, we're hamstrung by how, you know, we, we, the things we cannot do over there to win it. He said, you, it's simple. We can just win it. And Johnson said, well, son, I, I can't do that. That would be an act of war. <laughs> so you can imagine, I mean, the political uh, machinations that were going on at that time were just unbelievable. And it took years and years and years for people to understand really what was going on. And, my, and that was 1967, at the end of 67, when my dad said that to Johnson. And the war went on for another four or five years, you know, and six years. And lo- the loss of life... 58,000 American men, 2 million South and North Vietnamese. It was just unbelievable. What a waste. Mm. What an absolute waste. Well, Christina Olds, let's let's talk a little bit about what your father told you he remembers from fighting in Vietnam. I, I read that he was the leader of F4 Wolfpack, um, and, right. and well, he's remembered I, for that. And that has a wonderful story that's very present right now, too, if, if I have a, a few moments to be able to go yes, into that. please do. So his, his base was uh, the 8th Fighter Wing at Uban in Thailand. And the day of Bolo, Operation Bolo, on January 2nd, 1967, when he briefed his pilots in the morning before this very secret mission, and right before they were headed out the door, he said, go get them, Wolfpack. And that was in memory of Hub Zemke in World War II, who had been the, their group leader. And it was Hub Zemke's wolf pack in Europe that had gained so much attention and notoriety. And my dad renamed the 8th Fighter Wing the Wolf Pack. And it has stuck to this day. In fact, the Wolf Pack, the 8th Fighter Wing, moved from Uban in the late 70s up to South Korea. And they are now at Kunsan Air Base. I've been over there twice in the last two years. And that whole base is about Robin Olds. The Wolf Pack is known as the premier fighting wing 
in, in the Air Force these days. And they are at the forefront, along with Osan Air Base, of protecting South Korea against the North Koreans. And they train with the South Korean Air Force every day. Their motto is, be ready to fight tonight. And when you see pictures of that base, the symbol of the wolf is on the tail of every aircraft. It's on the cut front of every building. Robin Olds Avenue leads you onto the base. And so when I go over there and visit, it's a, an amazingly emotional time because the kids are so proud of their heritage of the 8th Fighter Wing. And they, are re- they really believe that Robin Olds is still flying on their wing. That, you know, his spirit is still inspiring them. It's so moving when I go over. I can get very emotional, so don't let me start. Oh, you're getting us there, too, yeah. Christina. Wow. Well, and Christina, looking at the numbers about, about your father, Robin Olds, you know, World War II, we said he completed 107 combat missions. But in Vietnam, I read, is this right, right 152 combat yes. missions? Yes. And the, and the great story about that is, of course, when you've flown 100 missions, you're supposed to go home. Yes. But the way he got around that was he would go into the ops room at night and erase his missions off the board. So if he was up to number 82, he would erase it down to 74 and then fill in a couple more. Or he got up a higher and he'd erase them down. And he didn't fill in all of his missions until the day he left. And he filled in every single one. It was 152 combat missions. And when you think of the fact that the commander previous to him had flown only three, and my dad was a 46-year-old full bird colonel, you know, with balding uh, and just it, it's a, it's phenomenal his record over there. And so, also you're supposed to go home if you became an ace, which is five over there. So he went over there with a record of 13 from World War II, and he shot down four. That's the official tally. But he didn't want to be sent home. He did, after shooting down four MIGs or five MIGs, so he stopped confirming. We do know he got number five. He didn't want it confirmed. Several people have tried to confirm it, but you really have to go through the hoops to confirm that. So he, and also he just didn't want to get sent home and away from leading his guys. So he would, if he found a MIG coming up, he'd tell his wingman, go get him. There's one. There's one at six o'clock. There's one. But the myth is he got seven, and one guy said, I know he got ten. Well, I don't think that's accurate. But, you know, I, I, I prefer to let the myth stand that, you know, he only got four, and he didn't want to get sent home. That is astounding. You know, just to think about about the men, you talk about the greatest generation, Christina. We've we've had a, another veteran that we talked to, and he said he you know he he wanted to get into the war, he wanted to get into the military. When they heard Pearl Harbor was bombed, they were all ready to go all in, and he couldn't pass the eye exam. Oh. And he kept failing and failing, and finally oh. he finally he kept trying again though. And the one time the doctor left, he memorized the eye chart. So when the guy came back in, he passed. <laughs> <laughs> and I have there's another wonderful story about my dad's roommate at West Point. It was the same thing. He wanted to fly, and he kept failing the the eyesight test, and he failed it, and he failed it, and he was heartbroken. Um, and my dad said, don't worry, I'm going to take you flying with me my whole career. And that kid's name was Scat Davis. Scat was, his, I think Henry was his real name, but Scat was his nickname. And so my dad named every aircraft that he flew Scat, mm. starting from Scat 1 all the way up to Scat 27, which is the F-4. He knocked down two MiGs in, and that is sitting in splendor at the Air Force Museum in Dayton, Ohio now. So it's got 27. And, you know, these kids, they just really wanted to get over there and be part of this amazing thing that was happening. 
Uh, Christina Oles, uh, we're talking with you about your father, Robin Oles, fighter pilot, and that's the book, uh, Fighter Pilot, The Memoirs of uh, Legendary Ace, Robin Oles. We're getting close to the end of our time. What is uh, one of the last stories that you'd like to share about your dad? Oh, my goodness. Well, he, you know, it's, it's more of a general story as opposed to a specific one. And the general story is when he retired, uh, they wouldn't let him fly anymore. They wanted to give him a second star. Um, They wanted to send him back to a desk job, and he said no way. And so he retired 30 years to the day after he graduated from West Point. And he moved to Colorado up in the mountains at Steamboat Springs and started skiing and playing bad golf. But pretty soon... He heard the call, the siren call of all the youngsters out there that were still flying, and he started accepting invitations all over the world to go speak to uh, pilot graduations, to reunions, to display days, to uh, air shows. And he would drive from Steamboat down to the Denver airport, take off around the world, come home a week later, drive back to Steamboat, do his laundry, repack, Three days later, get back in the car, drive back down to the Denver airport and take off to another part of the world. And he did. So he had literally 30 years of that after he retired, um, of, of going back and forth and back and forth around the world uh, to speak to and inspire the young officers that were flying. So he, he felt so passionate about motivating young young men and then young women to to do their duty to take care of each other to be proud to be americans to always always defend their country and to defend each other and to get the mission done and he spent the rest of his life right up until when he couldn't get on a plane anymore when he was 84 years old um, going around the world and speaking to the troops and that's what I do. I just carry on his legacy by writing the book and telling his story. And I just absolutely love traveling to different places. I'm going to heading to Germany next month for a month to speak to our Air Force and NATO bases um, and telling his story with and, you know, with a hundred and more photographs I have in a PowerPoint presentation. It's just so heartwarming to see that who my dad was as a man, as a military officer, as a leader and as a pilot was so exemplary that he is out there, his spirit is still influencing and inspiring people to do the best they can in their lives. That is very inspirational. Uh, Christina Oles, um, talking about your father, Robin Oles, and the book is Fighter Pilot, The Memoirs of Legendary Ace Robin Oles. You can get it at Amazon. I bet you can get it at Barnes & Noble. And uh, we would highly recommend the book. Thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, we always like to end the show, Molly, with a quote. And so this is a Robin Oles quote. He says, the best way to defend the bombers is to catch the enemy before it is in his position to attack. Catch them when they are taking off or when they are climbing or when they are forming up. Don't think you get to defend the bomber by circling around him. It's good for the bomber's morale, but it's bad for tactics. <laughs> oh, such a good quote. Yes. So such true. Quote. So true. Well, thank you so much, Christina Olds. This is the Ameritrix Molly and Kim.